Welcome to the Steve Has a Chat podcast, where I call someone out of the blue with the record button on and hope to have an unscripted conversation about Microsoft business applications. Let's see how it goes. Enjoy. Thank you for calling Microsoft. How can I direct your call? Steve Mordu from Muhammad Alam. Business Applications Group, how may I help you? Steve Mordu from Muhammad Alam. Sure. Can I tell them what this is regarding? I'm from the International Bean Counters Association, and we have some questions about its software. All righty. Please hold. Hello. Hey, Mohammed. Steve Mordu. How's it going? Good, Steve. How are you? Not too bad. You know, I do these podcasts where I call uh, call up you guys and talk about Microsoft stuff. Would you be interested in doing one of those with me? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. You know, I've already hit the record button. Yeah, so I, should have, uh, I should have figured that out when I saw you calling. <laughs> so, uh, if you got time? I do, I do. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in your world. You know, we're fresh off that uh, business application summit. I didn't get a chance to see you out there because I was running around like an idiot, and I'm sure you were too. But uh, what were your, uh, how did you feel about the summit? Um, I felt really good. I mean, I think um, just to see the the number of people that are attending just for us, I guess, even at the basic level, having a first party Microsoft event that squarely focused on business applications and Power Platform was uh, was really good. We had our first one last year, as you know, yeah. the second one was bigger, um, more organized. And I think this is something as a company we're going to continue to invest in because we're seeing just a ton of traction. So just to be just to get to one place where all we talk about is business applications and Power Platform is just exciting. Yeah, it does seem like we you know, we had convergence a while back, and then uh, you know I don't know if it was cost cutting or whatever the reason, but uh, you know kind of abdicated that to some of the third parties to go run their events, and they were doing fine. But I still think it was important that Microsoft have their own, and and I agree. Last year was great. This year was better. Uh, I expect it just continue to get better. Yeah, I think the only feedback I've gotten is uh, there's just not enough time to go to as many sessions as we had out there. People wish um, they could they could attend multiple sessions um, through the course of the uh, the two days or longer than two days, if you will. But I agree with you. I think um, having a first party event is great. I think you know what it went through. At least my two cents um, and editorial is I think we went through like a phase of assimilation into all the other Microsoft first party events that we probably weren't when we had convergence, which was also an issue. Um, so yeah. I think now. We're at a place which is kind of the best of both worlds, right? We're um, we're sort of a first class citizen of Ignite, of Inspire, of Ready, um, and a bunch of things we do um, across the company. And then we have our own event as well, which is uh, which is great. You know, it's a long way from uh, being that uh, you know kind of redheaded stepchild in the barn down the street from the campus, and the convergence was just all of us barn animals, you know, collecting <laughs> around a product. But we weren't really integrated back then much with Microsoft like it is today. That's exactly you articulated well um, from that perspective. But even for that uh, little little barn, should had uh, gotten to be pretty big towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you guys are are you, are you down there in Advanta also, right? I am. Yep. So you guys are all looking forward to moving uh, onto campus or building a new building out there for you guys, right? We are a lot of construction, um, particularly if you're going to main campus, which most of us go at least for uh, a lot of sort of customer meetings or executive briefings and so forth as well. But uh, 
we're so big now that believe it or not, the Advanta campus can't hold all of us either. So we're kind of splintered into, we have obviously have all of Advanta, but then we've got multiple teams and multiple other buildings outside of Advanta too. So I think it'd be good to get all of BAG, all of James's organization into a single place too, at least the ones that are uh, based here in the Puget Sound area. Well, still a little while. They got to build the thing, and that takes a little mm-hmm. bit of time. You know, your your particular part of the org has uh, you know undergone quite a bit of uh, of change. Also, you know, recently, I mean, I know just with the FNO side, you certainly have had your hands full, and lots of exciting stuff been happening there. And then, you know, more recently, kind of getting the business central kind of pulled in under your umbrella, I guess, and that team and stuff. I, I imagine you must be pretty busy now. I know the way I kind of think about this is I think I've had now multiple roles at Microsoft and at every role at that point in time, you look back kind of in a in a good old times fashion to the previous role and said, man, I wish I had that role still because that seemed like it was so much less crazier. Um, but I think in the in the next role, it just it, the bar just gets uh, increased. And that's kind of how I feel now. But it is exciting. I'll tell you, I think um how we're defining the things that we do in my world, which we kind of call these sort of the operations apps, if you will, the operations application group is exciting. Um, certainly the addition of Business Central and some of the other apps is is good. And it drives a level of clarity in terms of how we're organized, where we focused, where we investing in the operations apps area, if you will, because we've got a lot of clarity. And I think we've historically communicated externally quite a bit and quite articulately on the engaged customer side. So in terms of what we do in Salesforce automation, customer service, field service, and so forth, and marketing, um, I think FNO has just kind of been, oh, and then we've got FNO. So I think um, with some of these changes, and this is what, frankly, I think James has done really well, is bring clarity in terms of kind of how both in terms of how we're organized and what that means from an outside-in perspective, from a customer perspective. Yeah, there's definitely, I think, there's a distinction between aspiring for a, a new role and getting it and then having one kind of foisted upon your already full plate <laughs> because you're you're the only guy that really can take it on. And so I can see how uh, looking over your shoulder <laughs> to what you were doing before could seem like a little bit of a relief. You know, you got, I noticed you guys brought in um, – you know, because obviously Business Central was on its own trajectory and, and z- zipping down the lane under under Marco before, and you had plenty of stuff on your plate when it kind of came under your umbrella. And now I've I've seen we got uh, you know Mike Ehrenberg out there, kind of is is he just kind of keeping that that Business Central thing moving forward while we find somebody for that, or what's the what's the thought around that? Yeah, no, that's essentially it, right? And I think um, our my intent is, and, and I've been public about this with um, most of our partners, if not all of them, because we did a lot of partner calls as well when Marco was transitioning that, A, we are super committed to Business Central. Um, Business Central, for us having launched Business Central a little over a year ago now, um, not counting sort of Project Medier and others, it's it's been super successful and it's continuing, the trajectory is continuing to grow aggressively as well. So our intent is to... Um, um, is to continue to invest and kind of uh, make that a, a continued success story for us. And and my intent is I think we'll find the right leader. What I don't want to rush into is just finding any leader to be able to just yeah. kind of fill the spot. And it could be from within the team. It could be from the outside. But I want to take the right amount of time to to both kind of have a candidate pool out there that we pick the best person from because it's, a, again, a very strategic and a critical area for us um, from a product and a, and a space and a segment perspective too. And while we do that, uh, Mike graciously agreed to kind of step in as an interim general manager for the business as well, alongside still continuing to fill his um, sort of CTO technical fellow role for across all of the operations apps, including finance and operations, what we're doing in retail and, and other apps too. So I think that's been hugely helpful to uh, have somebody 
with that stature and with that experience to kind of still dig deep with the team more so than I'm able to, um, to continue to drive the plans for the next updates while we continue to find or groom the next leader. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, that that fuse isn't infinite, though. He's going to be getting antsy to get out of that chair. So at some point, he's going to be saying, hey, how are we doing on the guy? Take this over, right? Yeah, he's, uh, he seems to be enjoying it. I think uh, I'm actually worried that he might come back and say, you know what? I want to continue to do this more because it is actually a really good team. It's a really good product. It's a very engaged and passionate channel. So I can see why uh, he's not gotten uh, tired of it yet. His, uh, his heart's in it now. Yeah, something he can dig his teeth into deep, I guess. You know, I've never been a big fan of uh, Business Central, and it wasn't not Business Central per se. I just haven't been a fan of the idea of multiple ERP systems out there, especially when we made the move to the cloud. And you know, you and I, I've discussed that with you before. My that my my feeling like we ought to be able to solve that whole thing with a single solution. I know over on the Power App side, you know, an example where the Canvas apps and the model-driven apps are kind of converging into, you know, what in the future will kind of look like a single approach to market and a single path. Do you see anything like that ever happening on the cloud ERP side where FNO and Business Central just kind of meld into into a, a single-looking thing? I think... Um... And the, the Canvas apps and the model-driven app journey also, um, you know, it's a journey, right? It's not like a, yeah. a single end game with multiple click stops. So the way um, we're at least thinking about Business Central and I'm thinking about Business Central is the the success that we're seeing in Business Central today is, is coming from a segment that, frankly, um, finance and operations doesn't put in. Um, and it doesn't make sense for us to kind of go down to that level, at least from where we stand today. Um, and there's a significant, significant market there. Um, so we want to continue to make sure we have a solution for that market because they're looking um, to us to have something um, that's viable, that has a really great story with Office, that has a really great story with some of the other apps and uh, technologies we have with Microsoft, our, our platform being one of them from that standpoint. Plus, on top of it, <clears throat> we actually have a a very strong and a very large customer base and following, which is measured in hundreds of thousands um, for our SMB products, if you will, that essentially need and are looking for a click stop to get to the cloud in a true sort of um, cloud SaaS ERP model um, without a heck of a whole lot of replatforming or, or making it another platform decision. So for for all of those purposes and the successes, were, the early successes we're seeing with the product, which largely speaking, all, honestly, is coming from 80, 90% of net new logos, not that's part of those hundreds of thousands of existing customers. I think we feel good about what we have, but I agree with you. Um, I think the the confusion we get is from a segment in the market that is kind of mid-market, I'll call it sort of lower to sort of core mid-market, if you will, that can potentially run their business in Business Central, may have some level of complexity that would require it to for them to customize quite a bit or use a lot of ISVs that FNO might just be a good fit for now um, out of the box since we've functionally invested a lot in that over the years. Um, and that is an area that I think what you'll find us doing incrementally um, with the multiple click stops to bring together to make sure from an engineering investment perspective, from a capability perspective, we try to um, start bringing them together. So things like we're doing with for instance, our planning optimization service um, that brings um, both distribution requirements planning and MRP um, into a standalone sort of multi-tenant in-memory SaaS service is going to be available to both as well. And then as we certainly both um, continue down the journey of um, ensuring that the data and the schema maps to the common data model in the common data service, 
um, into a sort of a, a canonical single common data model for call it the ERP apps, if you will. Yep. It gives customers a journey to be able to say, hey, I've been using Business Central. Uh, my data is available in CDM and CDS. Um, once we kind of land those capabilities and now I feel like I've outgrown it. Um, so let me just kind of move the data over to finance and operations and I can continue operating it, albeit with some level of configuration they're going to for now can have to do on finance and operations um, today to be able to go do that. But I think we do, we will, we certainly do envision over time us allowing this uh, movement between the applications more and more. And that's certainly from an engineering and a feature area perspective, trying to drive a lot more um, synergies as well. Yeah, it does seem like there, I can imagine there being a little envy from both sides of the camp because there's things that, that F&O uh, has advanced the ball on and then there's things that Business Central has advanced the ball on, uh, many of which you guys have in common. Things like, you know, like getting to that single platform and, and quick release uh, cycle, you know, Business Central got there pretty quick. And, and you know, F&O has been, cause, just because of the size and its history, is, is probably one of the things you guys look over and envy about Business Central, and, and the reverse can also be said about Business Central, which has also a, a pretty tremendous uh, partner community around it, looking at things at F&O and kind of pining for, oh, I wish I wish we had that here, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, there's certainly a lot of goodness in both, and then there's certainly goodness that um, is unique to each one of them um, from that perspective. Um, there's a level of simplicity. I think the thing that to me is really the most attractive part of Business Central, amongst other things, is the, the fact that it's uh, it's simple to use. It's simple to kind of onboard and get to value much quicker, um, which is obviously designed for that segment, if you will. Plus, then there's a, a ton of ISVs on top that have actually made what we provide as a functional solution. Com they complete that to a level of vertical specificity, not even industry, right? Because industry is still pretty darn horizontal, but um, getting to a level of vertical specificity, specificity that a customer in that vertical can just kind of get the ISV um, and start using it essentially out of the box from that perspective. Um, there are things, obviously, in FNO from a feature function perspective that don't exist in um, in Business Central out of the box. But one of the things we have been doing in FNO is um, obviously from a from a single code line, one version perspective, continuously updated Evergreen. That was that is available in Business Central out of the gate when we launched it last um, last spring. That wasn't the case with FNO when we launched it a little over three years ago. Um, but with the one version move that happened this April. And the uh, ceiling of the app, we essentially are in a world now, too, where we've brought sort of this enterprise-grade um, ERP into a continuous update model, like like the CE apps as well, where we keep our customers continually updated with the strong commitments of non-breaking changes and backwards compatibility and so forth. So that part is kind of now um, common and equal um, across all of Dynamics 365, to be honest. Yeah, do you ever see a point where uh, FNO goes multi-tenant, or is that not necessary with this uh, single version as much anymore? Or so we are um, we are moving towards a multi-tenant journey as well. So I think if you kind of double-click on the architecture, which obviously from a customer perspective, you know, as much as they're getting the the SaaS ERP experience in the sense that they can have an ERP application that they can adapt to their unique business needs, but still can enjoy the SaaS benefits of being continuously updated in an evergreen fashion. That's kind of what a customer cares about, right? A customer it's doesn't necessarily care about whether it's multi-tenant or single-tenant, but what we are doing um, behind the scenes is, uh, you know, we have multi-tenancy now at the, at the data tier, um, and we're now most of our newer customers are on a multi-tenant compute tier as well. So we've kind of moved towards that journey as well. But one of the things we are actually 
we've been able to do, which has been honestly differentiated for us for this segment of ERP customers, is the fact that we are that, but we do allow a customer to essentially have a private app experience. So you provide a multi, uh, multi-tenant ERP SaaS offering with the ability for them to adapt it or extend it whichever way they would like, alongside also supporting um, hundreds of thousands of ISV solutions on top of it in a way where we can keep the service evergreen um, without making that a burden on the customer. So it's kind of a best of both worlds, if you will. And we're seeing that be successful when we look over our shoulders um, to, let's say, S4HANA, because if you look at the, the number of just live customers S4HANA public cloud has, it's far, far less um, orders of magnitude than where we stand and being less than a year older than them, if you will. Yeah, I think that uh, the multi-tenancy, I think, primarily benefits you guys potentially uh, cost-wise and, and other area-wise, but that eventually flows back to customers potentially in you know, fewer price increases or lower costs or more money to reinvest back into you know, product and features. Uh, but yeah, I would agree that you know, for the typical customer, their experience wouldn't look any different, whether it's multi-tenant or not. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think the benefit of the customer is, hey, if it's a if it's a service that's efficient to manage and run um, from an infrastructure and a platform perspective, then the the value should um, and that value should be passed along to the customer. I think what you'll also find in the in the segment that we're in in FNO and who we're competing against, right? And we do obviously these um, these uh, these 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 comparisons um, fairly regularly. Is if you look at the price point for S4 HANA, for instance, or if you look at public cloud or Oracle or NetSuite for that matter, which has far less capability than FNO, what you'll find is the price point for the value that we have is still one of the best that exists out there um, with the competitors that we have in the cloud SaaS ERP space. Um, so we feel good about that, that we're not passing any of the, the burden or the cost to the customer. Now, can we get um, and maybe have something that's a little bit more, um, call it skinnier or thinner for a different segment of customers? I think that is something you and I have discussed in the past as well. Um, but that would be us sort of intentionally looking at maybe uh, maybe a different segment. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting. I was uh, involved in some calls recently with some of the team on on some other issues, but one of the one of the slides that popped up had to do with kind of the the value in the marketplace uh, at our price point, and and it's pretty clear right now. It seems like almost across the board on all the Dynamics products. Uh, we're giving more features for a lower cost than almost any of our competitors in any of those spaces. Uh, and that, that seems to be a pretty. Co- I mean, I guess, I guess that's aggressive. Uh, you know, a building market share. But you know, at some point, you want to look back and say, you know, we we need to either reduce some features or increase some costs or somehow get get equal. Yeah, no, that's exactly it, right? I'm, I'm glad you say that too, because we that's kind of how at least we feel it from an engineering perspective too, and. Particularly in FNO, and I know we've made tons and tons of grounds on the on the customer engagement apps as well. But if you look at the like, we did six IP acquisitions last year. That outside of one, largely speaking, the rest of the five that customers had to pay ISVs for before, we're just kind of natively making available in the service for our customers at literally no incremental cost. So we do look at kind of where we do stand from a value and a price point perspective, again, particularly against our competitors. And that's something we'll, we'll continue to look at as well. But we feel good about the value that we provide. And, and certainly, like you said, I think at least for FNO, the growth we've seen in the last three years, is it's been phenomenal. And we, we set aggressive targets for ourselves, but we've kind of beat each one of them 
every year to the point that it is our fastest growing Dynamics 365 app, which is kind of counterintuitive if you think about it, right? Because it's an ERP app that's harder to deploy. It's kind of typically a rip and replace and so forth. But we feel pretty good about the value, the differentiation, and the, frankly, the growth that we're seeing. Yeah, it is. It would be an interesting experiment if there was a way to figure out what would the market do if this was priced significantly higher? Because I agree, the value is there to justify a significantly higher price. And you wonder if there are customers out there that because of the price comparison are assuming that, oh, well, this this must not be quite to par with these other more expensive products when actually it, it, it provides even more value. You know, it's that that, uh, that that whole price conversation is it is it priced too low and, and customers are you know are thinking it's less than it is. Uh, what would they do if the price were higher? Would it actually increase uh, interest if the price were higher? No, that's I mean that's that's such a such a such a valid point, Steve. It's uh, you know because you end up making yourself look like you're it can it can be true that you have so much and you're at that price point. But I do think I think part of that journey for us begins maybe not at the price, but also in how we tell the story. Because I do believe, at least in my world, and this just could be a complex I have <laughs> more so than anything else. Like we haven't done as a company a great job in telling our ERP story. I still run into a couple of customers like every quarter or so they'll say, oh, we didn't even know you had ERP. But then yeah. once somebody told us, you guys are literally in the lead. And I literally had this conversation with a very large customer in Dubai that said, hey, we didn't even know you had anything. So I think part of it is not even price. I think it's, it's just more, more awareness that we have the solution. And I think that starts with saying, hey, yes, it's FNO, but you know, at the end of the day, and this is how our competitors talk about what they have in this space is, hey, we've got a manufacturing solution. We've got a supply chain management solution. We've got a retail and e-commerce solution. We've got project uh, project service automation and things like that. I think we, the more we kind of put into a single bag, um, it becomes harder to kind of land the awareness that what's in the bag, right? And then the price point then kind of could also work against that potentially, like you said. You know, frankly, Microsoft has never been very good at marketing. Uh, and the Dynamics, the, the business applications group has been probably the worst of the bunch at, at really getting the word out about what's happening. And there's so much stuff happening, you know, new new products, new capabilities at, at such a rapid pace. And I think that there's been a dependency on partners to kind of get that word out. You know, we, we, you guys are a partner-driven organization, so you really are, you know, you're, you're informing the partners in the hope that the partner then goes out and informs the masses. And uh, not all the partners are informed, <laughs> you know, about what's what's going on. And it, it does seem like a real challenge. It's got to be a challenge for, you know, guys like yourself, you know, responsible for a product that, you know, we're doing great, but we should be doing way, you know, even better if people even knew what we had and what we're doing. They're just getting that word out to the people that are making the decision. And, you, you know, you hear about some ERP, you know, product or, or project that went to someone else. And you didn't even get a look at it because nobody even knew you did it. That's That's got to just be, you know, palm to the forehead. Yeah, I, I I'd love to send a copy of this podcast to uh, some folks at Microsoft. And the things that you're saying, I'd love for you to kind of sit in the same room when we have these discussions. The good thing is, though, you know, starting with the positives, I think we've made a ton of progress, more than a ton of progress in the last couple of years in understanding, hey, we, we need to do better in this space and then starting to do better in this space. The Business Application Summit being a great example, the Business Forward events that we've done, 
as well as now being part of the core first party Microsoft events. But the thing that has also happened alongside the same period is before our pace of innovation was uh, not the pace that it is today. So even though we're starting to do better, and I'll probably argue much better than what we did 10 years ago or five years ago, the bar is just kind of continually getting higher and higher with what we're putting out in the market from a product perspective across all of our apps and Dynamics 365 and Power Platform that even though we are starting to do better, there's always this gap um, that now exists between what's next versus what do our partners know, let alone our customers and so forth. So we're continually looking to improve that. Now we've got the release notes or the release plans process, if you will, a roadmap site and things like that. But keep the feedback coming because it's an area that we're super committed on getting really, really good at. Um, we're learning from um, how others do it and innovating on top of that as well. But um, I think, as I'm sure you know, and you feel like what comes in a release notes or even in a monthly update is probably now at a pace that is just too hard to consume and stay updated, especially if you're in a large project and complex project that you're just buried for a long period of time. Yeah, it's a challenge to get the word out to to customers about what's there, what the value is. It's a challenge to keep the documentation up to speed for the partners and people to be able to read just because of the pace. But this isn't, I mean, you guys can't slow down. I mean, this is this is the pace of of software today. It's 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 continuous uh, uh, features, it's continuous releases, continuous waves. Uh, it, there's no going back from this. I mean, this this is where you, where you are now. You know. Yeah, and trust me, we're not we're not slowing down. If anything, this one version is giving us a lot more uh, tailwind, if you will, to accelerate here. And we're. We're going to continue to do newer, innovative things, like I said, like in-app awareness of, hey, this just landed. You can click here to find more or just click here to watch a quick video so you know in flight what's going on as opposed to having to go to a classroom training or, or a web, web training or something like that as well. So the pace is only going to continue to increase to hopefully bring a ton more value to our customers. And again, with one version, it's hopefully a very low TCO value prop for them to have the bits and they can enable them at their own pace to get value out of it. Yeah, Alyssa had told me in a, one of these calls recently that you know there, this this upcoming year is a significant increase in investment in awareness and marketing, which is good. I think that uh, you know you can stand behind partners so long, and at some point you got to kind of reach over them and let the customers know what's happening, and and let some of those partners get pulled by the customers uh, towards the future, because not all partners are as as eager to move as as others. And uh, you know Hayden kind of double clicked on that also that uh, that he knows there's going to be some significant investment so so maybe that's coming because that that I, I sit here you know being you know, I, as an MVP and and on the pack I, I, I get a, more information earlier than a lot of folks do and I still feel lost sometimes mm-hmm. and uh, so it definitely makes you concerned about you know the channel in general that aren't even coming to say business application summit where we have maybe six seven thousand people there of all the partners that are in the space that's a fraction and only a fraction of those are you know in pack or mvp so there's a there's a large segment of partners out there that are uh, oblivious probably to the last couple of years of what's been going on and so much has been going on in the last couple of years you know that's exactly it and to make you know, this hopefully is going to be good news, but it might sound like it's only going to exacerbate the problem you just outlined. But if I just look in my area, literally only for the next nine months, because we're in April or June now, I guess it still feels like April. So let's just say the next six to eight months now. I mean, the type of stuff that we're landing, let's just look left to right and 
supply chain management, if you think about the IoT intelligence that we have for connected, what we used to call connected manufacturing, the planning optimization service, the additional capabilities in warehouse management, you move over to retail, um, all the things we're doing in retail, you move over to project service automation, um, the work we're doing with, uh, with the office team on uh, the new project online service, then you look at core HR, um, that's an area historically that we admittedly probably underinvested in um, and an area that we are getting ready to invest quite a bit in, if you will, to complete and then uh, core finance, if you will. And then not, you know, all of this is kind of for the for the FNO or call it the upper mid market to enterprise. And then you look at business central, the amount of innovation that we're pumping in there. Like if I just look at all of that, it's hard for me to see. You probably run off screaming. Let alone somebody on the outside. So I think we're going to exacerbate the problem. But I do, I do know that, and this is what I tell customers. I think we've learned a lot from our journey to the cloud, not just in Dynamics, but from Office too. Like we used to live in a world, which I'm sure you know and can relate to, is when we shipped the DVD or we gave you a link to download after you paid us the the perpetual license. Like Microsoft was probably nowhere to be found after that. Um, but in a cloud world, we know we, and particularly in engineering, kind of have to stay connected because we're running your service and some fairly mission-critical operations. So we have to have a way to directly communicate with the customers. Fast Track is one investment like that. But like you said, I think we're going to continue to have a, a, a percentage and a fraction of that percentage just kind of stay close to us through all the forums that you outlined just to make sure we get feedback and validation in terms of where we're going. But we have to have a scale, a communication um, scale out mechanism that is um, fairly uh, non-discriminatory of uh, kind of what your role is or what organization you're in. Yeah, it, it's really forced a change in the attitudes of all of us that, uh, you know, every month that customer can decide to cancel. Uh, yeah, exactly. and, they can, and they can make that decision from month to month. Every month they're going to look at that bill and make a decision if they're getting the value or not. Yeah, it puts a it puts a different a different level of pressure on both you guys and the partners to to deliver than we than we ever had in the past. Where, like you say, when the sale was over, you know, we'll we'll talk to you in three years. Um, hope you're still there. Yeah, exactly. A good pressure too, because I think um, yeah. that pressure makes us do all the right things we probably should have done in the product many many years ago. From a usability, from a performance, from a fundamental, from a feature function, from an AI perspective. So. We use those signals to really inform what we go invest in next because gone are the days where we'll sit in a room in Redmond and think about, hey, in three years from now, we want to land this feature and then just kind of sit back and hope people will use it when we land it. Like we literally don't do anything that we don't have customers uh, and partners waiting to use before we even launch it in private preview programs. So those signals are super important in today's world. Oh, yeah. And if you come up with an idea for something three years out, James is going to tell you, no, I want it launched next week. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, there's that risk, too. <laughs> yeah, he continues to keep kind of the blowtorch on everybody's butt up there to keep keep coming up with new stuff and keep it launching. Mm-hmm. You know, what are your uh, what are your opinions and thoughts around the changes going on in the ISV ecosystem, you know, with the, the moving to the rev share and 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 how do you think that's going to because I know that obviously you're you're dependent on a reasonable number of ISVs or not dependent, but uh, rely on a reasonable number of ISVs for certain segments and verticals in particular. And, and how does that how does that land with you? So it's a good question. Um, I think the kind of the best way to kind of think about this, and the, this is the way kind of how I think about this too, because I think we've had to I've had to go through a a level of sort of understanding kind of how it impacts. Um, listening to a lot of feedback from, from my ISVs or ISVs in the space as well is, you know, the landscape is fundamentally changing, right? So the way ISVs um, were 
you know, let's just say even five years ago or six years ago is not kind of how it is. And the way we were, the service was or the product was and kind of the value you can get from Microsoft wasn't what it is today or it can be. And I think what we're finding is sort of that value that we can provide to the ISVs, both from a service perspective, from a customer um, base perspective, which is now fairly phenomenal in a in a, in a fairly sort of very well competing and leading set of core applications and, and platform, as well as the access we can provide to our own sort of selling motions and marketing motions now that we are fully integrated from a dynamics perspective to arguably what's one of the larger largest um, sort of software companies out there um, has both a cost and a value that um, hopefully can accrue back to ISVs in terms of much more significant growth than they can have just being on their own. So I think the way I kind of step back and think about this is you know, the landscape's kind of changed quite a bit from a product perspective, from a value perspective, from sort of the access to a number of customers' perspective, the marketplaces that we have. Um, that obviously has some value that we can kind of put to it to us and a cost that we need to kind of go look at. And two, I think there's probably a lot more incremental opportunity for the ISVs as well um, in playing in that ecosystem, if you will, as well, that while sure there might be a cost to them, the return would be far more than, frankly, what we could have provided for that cost even five years ago or two years ago, um, perhaps even as well. So my hope is, and I think that's kind of the, the feedback we're starting to get with some of the ISVs, that it could um, it will be a win-win scenario for them. Now, it's a little bit, I'll call it newer for, I'll call it ISVs in my space, in the FNO space, because there is a, at least a pattern out there um, with Salesforce on the customer engagement ISVs. We don't yeah. quite have a pattern like that in, uh, let's say, S for HANA or Oracle um, or NetSuite or Workday for different reasons. Um, but I do think the fundamental sort of value prop um, kind of stays the same. And frankly, with what we have from a both a customer base perspective and a field perspective that is in the CE site accrues directly to those partners as well to be able to kind of go talk to um, and at least be visible to those uh, set of customers too. So. So I, I believe it's a fair equation. I think we're obviously listening and reacting and talking to a lot of ISVs along the way as well to make sure we, um, you know, we're we're staying grounded on real feedback as opposed to somebody we just something we just think of and uh, and land regardless of uh, what the feedback is. Yeah, you know, when I look at when I look at what Salesforce has been able to accomplish through ISVs with a rev share model with their app exchange that. Uh, frankly, is a, a huge contributing factor to where they are today. And then I look back at, you know, when when Microsoft launched AppSource uh, as kind of an answer to that, but there was no revenue share component to it at the time. It was, you know, we'll we'll create a vehicle. But I think that I think that was that was kind of the missing the missing fuel. You know, where Salesforce has a vested interest, directly vested, not just you know peripherally vested because it might sell some other licenses, but they're directly vested in the success of App Exchange. that, that I think that's, that's got to contribute to their success. And Microsoft, uh, AppSource, they weren't directly vested in the outcome of that. It was, it was all indirect, and I, just, I just don't think it got the, the attention it could have or, or that we'll see now. And, and, and the proof's in the pudding, you know, because I think there was a lack of, of vested interest, directly vested interest in app source, it, it wasn't as successful as it could have been uh, up until now. And so that, I think that's got a lot of people looking at that as the track record and saying, oh, wait, now I got to pay you a share of my revenue for that experience. But, but that's, that's, the, that's what the time will tell. I mean, is that the expectation is that whole experience will be completely different 
as a result of this. When you look at co-sell, particularly on your side, I'm assuming that's a bigger factor for F&O than it is for Business Central. Uh, but they've got they got a, a choice. You know, the Business Central uh, ISVs can, you know, they don't have to opt into co-sell if they don't see a big opportunity for them in co-sell. Is that kind of how you're seeing some of those look at the F&O guys are all going straight to the co-sell side and the Business Central are kind of hanging back? Yeah, so we've intentionally not... Um business centralized Vs aren't part of the the program yet. Um, I think we are thinking through kind of what that what that is from a time frame perspective. And I think there's sort of multiple reasons for that as well. But FNO partners are um, for all the reasons like you said. Um, so I'll I'll probably explain first as to why business central isn't, but then I'll also maybe touch upon a question you didn't ask, at least a perspective my perspective on it, um, which is why kind of who we are now compared to what we were even, let's say, two, three, four years ago. Um, so the business centralized ISVs, I think, are going through, um, you know, we're working with them very closely, like we work with a lot of FNO partners in uh, in the early days of when we moved to um, a fully extensible sort of lockdown um, SaaS service that they have to take the ISV solutions that they've had in the on-prem world um, and refactor them to work as extensions on the cloud SaaS service. So there is um, there is work that's happening actively. And we're big seeing- investment. Yeah. Big investment, yeah. So we don't want to. We obviously want to make sure that we're cognizant of that. There's an active investment that these ISVs are doing, and they they have a choice, right, in this phase, um, in terms of hey, why should they continue to bet on Business Central? Should they not? Obviously, we absolutely want every single last one of them to bet on the platform, which we're already seeing is uh, uh, showing a lot of success. Yeah. Um, and we want to be uh, mindful of that investment that they're making. So there's a there's there's there isn't a a stated plan yet for the Business Central one yet. On the FNO one, we do, and I'll say this, I think you're absolutely right. I think hopefully there's two things we do now from a credibility perspective that resonates with a lot of partners as well. One is, you know, what we say we're going to go do, we do. Um, and then two, we're not, you know, we're humble enough to listen and learn from it as well if it's not working out well. And I'll, I'll give a couple of examples, right? In the FNO world, because um, I'm recently been more, most closest to that is, when we said, hey, we're going to go seal the application such that you can't have overlayered code in April, a lot of partners actually didn't believe that till even the month before we said we'd go do it, and we did it. Um, and it actually ended up being relatively successful from that perspective. And then a I lot think, of I think you might have announced that you were going to do it a lot earlier than that, because I do remember hearing the sealing conversation going on for some time. Uh, yeah, we did. You, we announced you may not have announced that you were going to get it done any sooner than you did, but yeah. but it definitely seemed like that conversation was going on for a long time. Fair enough. There was a longer heads up period, but I think the point I was trying to make was there was skepticism whether we'll follow through on it or not. Same for one version in FNO on can you really keep my manufacturing and my retail operations continuously updated without breaking changes because to your point, historically, our upgrades hadn't been that seamless, if you will, from an issue perspective or cost perspective. So our our track record didn't accrue to the fact that we can pull it off. But I think the feedback we're getting now, having done thousands and thousands of them, is what you said you were going to do is kind of what you're doing, which is great. So I think what hopefully people will find is, A, um, we're committed and the stuff we say we do, but we also learn. Like we up, up enhanced the update schedule for FNO literally a month or six weeks ago based on feedback from customers and partners that was received, again, very, very favorably as well. Um, so. Well, you, ha- you guys had to be just chomping at the bit to get the thing sealed yourself. I mean, that solves all kinds of issues for you guys. Absolutely. Um, it was, was that the, was the, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, 
I know you and I had talked one time, and I think I think at the time you said you had something like you know a couple of dozen versions out in the market, and that's just you know that's just hard to sustain and ridiculous uh, you know support obligations across all those different versions. So getting to a single version has got to be has got to be huge. Were were there concerns more about whether you would do it or whether you could do it? I think both both yeah. to be honest. I'll give you one example, like on the FNO world or the AX world, like we uh, had an end of life to product since probably 2009. Um, we always kept extending it. So even when we did end of life 2009 and, and R1 and R2 in 2012, people were like, yeah, are you really going to do it up until we did it? So yeah. I think part of it was whether we can follow, follow through on things we say and timeframes we give because we didn't have a lot of great track record in doing so. But the other part was because particularly ceiling in one version, just it took decades worth of engineering work for us to be honestly ready for it in a way that we can uphold the trust. A big part of it was, could you even pull it off successfully? Yeah. Well, I think that that uh, you know firming up uh, the stance was important because you guys would announce end of life or announce deprecation, and nobody would do anything until the date came, and then everybody'd scream and holler, and you guys would would roll it back or extend it. And, and so you kind of got known for your dates don't mean anything because enough enterprise customers will complain and you'll just move them. And I, I think it's important and has been important to get to that one version and have that be, look, that's happening, ready or not, uh, to have to have customers and partners just get in the mindset of, you know, we got to be ready. We can't just count on somebody's going to go complain to James and he'll undeprecate the Outlook client or something like that, you know? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it, right? I mean, you brought up a really good example, too, from an Outlook client perspective, too. Um, I think part of it does start with leadership strength. I mean, we have to give kudos here to James as well for his clarity of strategy and message and resolve to say, hey, we're going to go do the right thing. It might seem painful, but as long as we do it the right way with the right focus and fundamental, I think it will accrue goodness. Like, I'll tell you, the one version piece, as painful as it is for us, you know, it was more painful for customers because we they were living in a world where they had to run on run into literally the same pothole that hundreds others might have run into for them to realize it's unavoidable issue to pull the yeah. fit pull the fix get the disruption like today they don't right if one person runs it we fix it nobody else will run into that ever again yeah there's there's wisdom i think it was fear i think uh I think particularly and, and probably even more so on your side of the house because ERP is, is I think, almost every time more mission critical than than anything else in the organization. And it, there's this, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I don't want to touch this yep. thing. It's working. You know, don't go anywhere near, don't even breathe on it. And and you guys are walking in the door saying, hey, let's let's get this thing on a single version and seal it up and uh, bring in some ISVs. And uh, that, yeah, that's that's a conversation a lot of those folks are just not the least bit interested in having. So I can, I can see that have been a challenge to get them uh, to make that move. Sounds like you have some scars from doing ERP work before, Steve. <laughs> uh, you know, I've witnessed it from from the side. I haven't actually <laughs> done done the ERP work myself, but I've but, but I've witnessed it. I, I mean, we've seen it even in the in the CE space where you know customers that have got a process built, they they spent a bunch of time, money, and energy, and got you know everything is just balanced just perfectly. Uh, you know, and and linked together just perfectly, and they just get afraid to touch anything. And um, you know, I, I I appreciate that, but you know, world moves on, and and normally what they're denying themselves is just a whole bunch of capability. They're they're holding themselves back. And when we look at some of the stuff coming out around AI and and lots of these 
you know, the, the MR stuff that's coming. I mean, none of those folks would be able to touch any of that stuff if they hadn't, hadn't moved. So yeah, that's exactly uh, plus, plus also adding stuff on the cost side, right? The total cost of ownership. So when they do want to go do that, it's going to be exponentially costlier for them to get there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, I mean, now there's no automated tools anymore for migrating you from that version. It's way too old and, uh, or you've got to go migrate through like 12 different versions to get current and, and just massive things. What are you thinking about the, the, the latest stuff with, uh, the MR? I, I, to be honest, you know, when they started down the path with the MR, I was thinking, hmm, a really, this is a really cool solution to a problem that may not exist. I remember seeing the demos on stage of like the the mixed reality with the, you know, with the Polaris and somebody putting on a headset to go change a light bulb in a Polaris. And I was thinking that's that's not a good use of that or value <laughs> for that. But but when I sat in on the uh, at uh, the business application summit, I sat in and listened to the Chevron guy talk about how they're using it where they've got, you know, these oil rigs miles offshore uh, and, you know, something goes wrong and, you know, they're able to put a headset on, you know, uh, just anybody just about on the, on the rig and wire them up to an expert back at the home office and fix some mission critical. And I thought, bingo, you know, now that clear and present value, undeniable, unquestionable, but a lot of these others, I, I kind of question, what, do, what are you thinking about the MR stuff? No, I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, to be honest, I think I kind of went through a little bit of the same journey. Um, but I will tell you this. I think the applicability and the value, certainly if done right with, with customer signals and validated customer feedback is absolutely there, particularly if I kind of selfishly look again in the world that uh, that I manage here. Like if you look at high value um, sort of workplaces, right, um, where you have a lot of frontline workers in the operation space, we've got most of them, if not all of them, right? So we've got the store, the, the retail store. We've got the shop floor where you do manufacturing. We've got the warehouse where you move a lot of goods. And there's just tons of applicability there. Like if you just look at manufacturing, one of the scenarios we are working in enabling with MR is with the recent enterprise asset management acquisition we did for asset intensive organizations, they're kind of in the same boat as these oil rigs, right? That if something goes down or if they need to go run regular checks across a multitude of sites that may exist globally, it's hard to kind of go have um, experts sitting in all the locations or somebody go read a script to be able to go do that or watch a video and then come back and do it in real life, which is never the same. Um, but you can go do that now with an embedded link um, from finance and operations and the enterprise asset management piece to say, hey, this machinery emitted this sig this fault signal that we've run into this before because we can recognize the pattern and this is kind of how you go reset it or adjust it um, in a manner that just kind of now makes it a lot more uh, sort of decentralized, if you will, and how you can go fix it than a fairly long drawn out downtime that an organization or the shop floor might have to take to find the right person to get the work order schedule to go fix it and get the equipment back up and running, if you will. So there's many scenarios like that. There's a lot of scenarios in warehouse that can optimize um, essentially sort of the, the big back locations as well and how do you get to them and, and optimize kind of how traffic's flowing in a way too that we're, we're thinking through and, and collaborating with the MR team on. 
Yeah, I think I, I definitely feel like we're about to hit the groove on the MR that, that up until recently, I can imagine you guys all sitting in an office looking at those hall and said, okay, come on, there's got to be an important use for this thing. Uh, and now we're actually seeing some of these these use cases pop up, and I think those are going to lead to to more similar type of use. It's kind of finding its groove of, okay, here's here's where it creates you know tremendous value for a customer. So let's let's go deep down these these grooves and and it, it i guess it's kind of typical for any new new product or new new application is that we build it because we can and we think there's going to be a need we're not exactly sure until we get it out there and then we maybe the need is a little different than what we first thought but we ultimately discover a need or we pull the plug on it and i and i feel like mrs is just now hitting that groove yeah no, that makes sense i think that's kind of how we see it as well Plus, the art is also in making sure we take validated customer signals around pain points to kind of have some out-of-the-box experiences as well so people can use. So it doesn't end up becoming, hey, fine, I bought some some uh, HoloLens devices, and now I need to hire some uh, some engineers to go do something with it, too, um, from that perspective, too. So I think the more consumable, high-value scenarios that just could be used off the shelf as, as much as possible, it's going to kind of drive drive the, the sort of the, the mindset shift in terms of people and organizations in terms of work and they get value out of it too. So we're super focused on that part. Well, and you know, obviously over time and probably not that long, the cost of these devices will drop. It always does with devices. I mean, you'd be, if you'd be able to pick up a HoloLens for, you know, 49 bucks in a few years, you never know. And that, you know, as that cost, which of course more people using it helps drive more into building it to drive the cost down. And ultimately it'll become, you know, th that, that'll help because right now, you know, the cost of HoloLens is one of the factors that you have to weigh against the value. And as that cost comes down, you know, a lot more, you know, a lot more applications would be applicable at a lower cost point. It will be. And I think the, the other part, the other way to look at this is like, even if you look at the Chevron example, regardless of kind of where the cost is of HoloLens, what we find in scenarios like this, certainly for organizations that size or that level of uh, complexity is the cost of the alternative would have been far higher than the cost of a couple thousand dollars worth of um, HoloLens, if you will, um, and the speed and the opportunity cost that they otherwise have avoided. I think if you look at it just from a true end-to-end -end cost of to the business or the lost revenue or, and things like that, I think from that perspective, um, in some of these scenarios, it, regardless of where the HoloLens cost is, it'll still, the business case of it would still be so super evident in and of itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, those are those are kind of the easy ones, you know. I mean, we're we're working right now with a customer who has apparently some problem with tracking credit cards as costing them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. So they're willing to spend quite a bit to solve that problem, and it isn't going to take very much to solve that problem. And those are the those are the the wins you look for. But you know, when you think about that warehouse you talked about, full of workers, you know, we're not at a point yet where we're going to go buy a thousand Hololenses and stick it on everybody's head, walk around the warehouse. Um, but at some point in the future, the cost of those devices will get down to where you could think about, hey, what does this do if we actually got a headset on every worker in the warehouse? It, yeah. It'll open up. It'll open up a whole different kind of stuff than what we're looking at today. You know, we've we almost need those home run wins today. Uh, to justify that, but in the future, as the uh, as the cost of hardware comes down, it wouldn't fairly simple. Uh, uh, you know, applications would suddenly make economic sense for people to look at. Fair enough, makes sense. On the uh, you know on the AI side, you know those those are the two things that I know you guys were really doubling down on 
this year of of say new. I mean, I know there's a lot of enhancement and and whatnot uh, plumbing going on, but of the the outward appearing big blocks, you know, AI and MR, or or a couple of them we're hearing a lot about. And you know, on the AI side, you know, I I kind of I hate to sound like such a cynic all the time, but I I had kind of felt like AI for a lot of customers, and maybe this is more the mid market customers. They look at it as that is really, really cool. I want that. But then they kind of struggle with how to get how to get it. You know, they they see a potential end result, of course, that was, you know, based on, you know, some data scientists working behind the scenes and a bunch of perfectly clean data. And then they look at their, you know, house of cards full of data and just trying to get from here to there. And I gotta think on the FO side, I mean, there's not a lot of I mean, everybody's got dirty databases and FNO is probably no no exception. How, how are you seeing that AI story play out on the FNO side? It's a really good question. I mean, I think uh, I kind of I'll kind of divide it up into at least two examples. One being um, I kind of put sort of this I kind of look at AI as a category and kind of how we can enable sort of um, IoT scenarios that give you a lot more insights and ability to action and react quickly in an almost near real time fashion. as sort of a category of AI. The ones that the the example I'll focus on more is kind of more let's call it ML driven AI, if you will, within the context of the business process, and that's really where we're super focused on um, from a finance and operations perspective. And we've done some good work, um, to be honest, in the business central side of it too. Um, That's right, getting getting signals and reading signals and acting on signals. On the IoT side, but on the ML side, the examples that like the one or two examples I'll give you, um, then we'll start kind of showing and talking about it. One, this one we've kind of talked about before is um, payment prediction, and you know you you kind of wonder. Um, it sounds so simple, but like most of the customers, if not all of the customers I've talked to, have been so excited about this one because it just sounds so basic but so high value for them. Um, but what this does essentially is based on your data and the history of kind of when your payments have come in um, for your open accounts receivable, it'll look at that data and based on a and an algorithm give you a prediction whether it's going to come on time, it's going to be late, it's not going to come in ever, or it's going to be late by this much. Um, so you have a view in your open AR where you can then start to take some action in a proactive predictive fashion before the payment gets late to say, hey, also now you know if these are going to be late for these signals that we think um, because of which they're going to be late, that if you send a collection letter now or at least some notice um, or give them another half a point and discount that the probability goes up to this, um, that then you can take some action on top of that insight to be able to bring cash in in a much more predictable fashion, which obviously is, is super useful and super valuable for organizations. So what we're working on is taking really very horizontal scenarios like that, that you can actually get the intelligence out of the box in a consumable fashion um, without having to hire data scientists or developers for it to make this happen. And we're doing this in partnership with the with the AI builder um, capability in our platform. So it kind of comes in natively. The model kind of resides there. We've got that out of the box um, sort of seamless integration with FNO where um, the data is there. You can kind of train it. You can select the, the, the attributes that should be part of the model. You can look at what the score is and then just kind of bring it in and have your folks start executing on it. So what you'll see us do is essentially you know, take the pattern that is in this example, if you will, and just kind of spread that across the surface area of the app. I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, we're, we're taking a, a common problem that can be, you know, addressed with uh, machine learning, and we're going ahead and packaging up a solution that, that is closer to like plug and play, plug play value. Exactly. Um, 
and 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 I thought we're seeing that over on the, the you know the customer engagement side with some of the insights that are kind of like pre-configured, and maybe it's not exactly everything you'd want to see, but there's enough value there, and it was pretty simple to you know plug play value. And I think that that's that's going to be the key for some of these customers that want it, can't figure out how to get it. Um, their data state is a mess, but you can still. So I don't, I don't want to call it a taste test, but I mean, we're going to get them addicted. You know, we get the, when, they, when they start uh, from a fairly simple process, being able to, you know, reduce their receivable turn time. Yeah, that's going to that's going to get some eyeballs on the whole idea. And then was yeah. there something around fraud? Uh, some big talk about fraud protection, too. So that, yeah, that's, no, that's exactly too, right? I think we've got the, the Dynamics 365 for fraud protection um, as well that allows you to kind of look at and optimize on sure the transactions that you reject. Um, thinking that they may be fraud. So the more you can reject less and have higher fidelity and a better accuracy on which ones you want to take in, obviously you monetize more. And I like that. Wanna, the more you, you can reject, reject less. Yeah. No, exactly. I'm, uh, there's probably a much more better way of articulating this than, than what I just said. Oh, that sounds good. Um, and the more you reject the right ones, that's obviously um, less risk for you. So that thing's, uh, I mean, the value prop on that, particularly with the, with what we do for Microsoft and how the model's been trained, because we actually use that literally for our billions and billions of, um, of transactions or, or consumer business that we have, if you will, um, is something that we're, we've kind of packaged up to make available for our customers too. So that that is another one exactly that kind of provides a very high value scenario, if you will, um, to some of the customers. Yeah, I could see. So the one on the receivables turn is kind of uh, machine learning on your own data and your own history with your own customers. And I would imagine the fraud has got to kind of reach out to some external sources to do a little cross-referencing in order to, to come up with that signal. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And we're going to do a lot of the simple ones too. Like another example, maybe uh, as in similar to or as a parallel to the customer engagement, customer health score would be like supplier scoring, right? Um, based on on-time delivery, quality of the product, you can get a, we won't call it a supply relationship help, but kind of like a supplier score that allows you to kind of predict your supply accurately for if you're in production or retail or anything else like that. So the scenarios are just, to some extent right now, we're just scratching the surface, but we'll continue to double down, like you said, as an area. Well, that's, those are both good examples of uh, some areas with AI that I, I love the idea of you know, instead of here's a here's a AI capability, go hire some data scientists, spend a year and a half, and maybe you'll get something out of it. I love this idea that here's a product that is bringing AI to your organization, install it, a little configuration, and suddenly your receivable turn is down. I mean, that's 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 definitely the way to attack it. The goodness is all of this is adopt like the common data model and the common data service. So even if you want to get started before your FNO implementation is fully done, if you can bring your data into that known form. Mad. the model will give you the results that you're looking for too. Yeah, Steve uh, Guggenheim had said on my call about uh, he thought there was actually a partner business opportunity around cleaning up data estates. You know, we got, there's so much uh, mess out there and we're continuing to ingest, you know, we got 250 connectors out there that let you ingest even more on top of your pile. And uh, now, now it's definitely a time for people to be looking at that. It's, it's, it's always been a challenge you know, dirty data duplicates. And it's funny to me, the workarounds that customers sometimes go through of creating oddball check boxes or different things just to avoid having to go clean up that mess because it's just not fun. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the most often underlooked, um, but most common reasons for implementation delays, right? 
Oh, and it's it's the Achilles heel for AI. I mean, if if your data if your data is not good, you mean AI is not you know just not going to do anything for you. It's an, it's something that you you guys are going to probably ultimately going to have to come up with some way to, to to. I know there's some ISVs that have got some solutions out there around data cleanup, but but that's gonna that's going to be a blocker in the road for a lot of things we're trying to do here in the near future. I think so. Well, Muhammad, I appreciate you taking the time. I've gobbled up uh, like an hour of your afternoon. I know this is a good conversation. It didn't feel like uh, we spoke for an hour, but I'll, uh, I really love the insights that you have, um, as well as hopefully some of, the, some of the feedback here is helpful and insights. Yeah, I was talking to Jeff York, and he turned the thing around on me and started interviewing me in the middle of it. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be calling you. <laughs> That's fine. All right, cool, man. I guess I will see. What's your next event uh, uh, that you're going to be attending? Inspire. I'm actually, uh, I've got a wedding commitment, so I won't be making Inspire this year. You're going to be going down to uh, Orlando for Summit? Yep, I'll be there. I'll right, well, uh, that, see you then. Or I may see you at uh, PAC before that, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time. You have a great day. You too. Thanks, Steve. Good talking Thanks. to you. Bye. Oh, wait. I just thought of one more question. Hello? Hello?